This is Business Breakdowns. Business Breakdowns is a series of conversations with investors and operators diving deep into a single business. For each business, we explore its history, its business model, its competitive advantages, and what makes it tick. We believe every business has lessons and secrets that investors and operators can learn from, and we are here to bring them to you. To find more episodes of Breakdowns, check out joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts and podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Today, we will be breaking down pet care giant Petco. Founded in 1965 as a mail order business, Petco has evolved into a one-stop shop pet care solution across its nearly 1,500 locations. To help break down Petco, I am joined by Greg Kampstra, current CEO of pet care provider Riverdog and former private equity investor. We will discuss how Petco evolved into its current big box model, how pet care store economics differ from grocery economics, and what impact e-commerce has had on the industry. It's always fascinating to learn about secular growth stories and the pet care industry falls into that category. I hope you enjoy this breakdown of Petco. All right, Greg Kamstra, welcome to Business Breakdowns. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Yeah, let's dive right in. So for those who don't know, what is Petco? Petco is a nationwide pet supplies retailer. They do a variety of services, including grooming, training, veterinary services, and they sell dog food. These guys do about $5.2 billion revenue today. It's a $120 billion industry, so they're maybe 4%, 5% share. They've got about 10% margin, so $500 million of EBITDA. They've got 1,500 stores almost. About 100 of those have vet clinics today. And in the next 10 years, I think they're going to add vet clinics to most of the rest. And when you think about the industry as a whole, it's obviously a fairly fragmented industry. But these guys are one of the largest players. And my guess is if you have a dog or a cat, you've probably been to Petco at some point in your life. Yeah, that makes sense. In terms of the 1,500 stores, today, how much of their business is e-commerce versus offline? So today, they're somewhere in the neighborhood of 600 to $650 million of revenue. So maybe 12% or something is e-commerce, which I'd say is probably underpenetrated relative to most retailers you would see out there. Obviously, in the pet space, there's a few big behemoths like Chewy, Amazon. So they've got a lot of the e-commerce share in the industry. But these guys, I think, are behind the ball relative to a lot of physical retailers in in building up an e-commerce presence. Zoom us out a little bit and tell us more about the market. So you said 120 billion, it's fragmented. Give us a sense for how you look at the market and what you think about where it's going. So when I think of the market, I think one important thing to do first is just differentiate across the different categories. So Petco is an aggregator. They play in most of the major pet care categories. So they play in food, they play in veterinary. That's fairly rare. When you think about the market, call it 80 billion is consumables and supplies. So this is dog food, leashes, treats, all this type of stuff. That's obviously their historic market. Vet care is another 35. And the balance of it is non-vet services and actual pet sales and, and things like that. So when you sort of break out the market, I think a lot of people think, okay, there's all the retail stuff. That's two thirds of the market. Then there's the services stuff. That's a third. And of the services, that is the big one. When you kind of zoom out, those are the two main factors. And they have historically been very strong in the pet supplies and less strong in the services. They haven't had vet clinics in most of their stores, for example. They're working hard to change that. That's one of the major transformations the company's going through. When you look at the industry as a whole, these guys were founded in 1965 
At that time, the industry was a billion dollars. Today, the industry is $120 billion. So this unbelievable growth in the industry, if you look 10 years forward, it's anybody's guess, but if you look at the sell side estimates for where revenue is going to be in 2030, for example, that's closer to 300 billion. So that's, again, just this massive expansion versus where it is today. And when you think about the industry as a whole, a lot of that growth is coming from services. And so when you look at these guys, that's their big pivot. They're thinking, hey, it's really hard to compete with Chewy and get that much margin on dog food, but I can expand into my own own brands and I can expand into veterinary. Taking a step even further back, how does pet ownership work in the United States? How many pets are there? Give us a sense for how that looks and how this market has grown so much since 1965. 85 million households in the U.S. have pets. I think it's two-thirds, 67% of people today have some kind of pet versus in 1960, it was 40%. I think when you look at the major drivers of the market, you can kind of say, okay, look, over the last 60 years, there's a lot more people in the U.S. than there used to be. The chance you own a pet has gone from 40% to 67%. So it's much more likely. And then I think the third and the really dominant theme in this market is the spending per pet is up dramatically. So when you think about in the 60s, 70s, 80s, when these guys were getting their start, mostly people bought pet food at the grocery store. Mostly it was undifferentiated. It was Purina and it was not that expensive. And today people are feeding their dog raw food diets. They're taking their dog to daycare five days a week. They're spending a lot of money on very particular, you know, types of equipment and types of treatments. And so that kind of explosion in spend per pet is another huge underlying theme in the market. And that's the thing that's taken it from a billion to 120 and forecasted to 300. That specific metric spend per pet, do you have a sense for how that's evolved for those three time periods? I would sort of tell you, you know, today the spend per pet is about $1,000 a pet and that's growing very quickly. So I think in 2009, it was 650 bucks a pet. It's a thousand. And I think by 2030, it's expected to be about 2000. And that's per year, correct? That's per year. Yeah. And you mentioned grocery stores and we talked about Petco. Who are the big players? Where are the big buckets of where people play in this? Just give us a sense for the map of the market and what it looks like. If you look at the grocery and the mass channels, they're about 50%. And we can kind of go through the history of how these guys got started. But historically, that number was closer to 95%. So the pet specialty market today, I think has taken, you know, if you kind of think about like the pet purists, it's gone from 5% to half or something of people's pet spend. And then when you look across, once you get into that half, the pet specialists, Look, these guys would be five out of 60 billion, right? So that's 8% share. PetSmart is slightly larger. Chewy is slightly larger, but nobody has that much of the market. That part of the market is quite fragmented. Got it. It sounds like there's grocery, there's these specialty guys like Petco, two or three of them, and then a bunch of smaller players. You mentioned their founding story. Take us back to when they were started, how they were started, and what unique insights that they leveraged when they first started the business and how that's evolved over time. Petco began in the 60s as a mail-order vet supply business. They were fairly entrepreneurial and they started getting into the retail store because they had this specialty equipment and they were trying to sell it however they could. And so they grew the store count a bit. They made some acquisitions, but it was relatively small. And I think if you had been a US market watcher in the 60s and 70s, I'm not sure that they really would hit your radar screen. The big inflection point was later on in their story, they had 100 and something stores. And in the 80s, one of the things that happened in the pet market was Historically, the pet market had, like I mentioned, been dominated by grocery. There weren't that many SKUs, but there were some dominant brands. And like many markets, that really carried the day. And to be honest, if you're going to feed your dog Purina and you can buy it at the grocery store, there's not really a reason for you to go to a specialty pet store. You're going to the grocery store every day anyway. So that was how sales worked. There were some brands that in the 80s came up with this idea that, hey, actually, we can do a lot better for our dog's nutrition. Once you got differentiated product, these specialty stores really started to explode. And this is a recurring theme across 
U.S. retail. In the 80s and 90s, a lot of types of specialty retailer really came onto the market and exploded in a big way. That's certainly true. And that was really the thing that got these guys off to the races was they started getting IMS, they started getting science diet, they got all of these specialty formulated things that you couldn't get in a grocery store. And people started making the switch over from the grocery channel to their channel. The specialty brands, how much do the margins differentiate or like what are the economics of a specialty brand price-wise for the consumer versus a Purina brand? Today, I'd say you're talking about maybe a 30 to 50% premium for a really good high quality dog kibble versus kind of a generic low end dog kibble. So candidly, it's a little bit warranted. A lot of that is explainable by quality of the ingredients. You know, people put all kinds of stuff into dog food and <laughs> the low end brands, it's really bottom of the barrel stuff that goes in there. How do you view the economics of Petco when you're thinking about that business or describing it to someone? Let's go with like a real specific example. So Origin is kind of a brand that I think right now is at the crux of an industry because they just got onto Chewy. So historically, this was a brand that maybe you had to be Petco or PetSmart or something to sell. The way it would work is you'd wholesale a bag of Origin. I believe it wholesales for what's called $37 a bag. 13 pound bag of dog food. They mark it up 50%. So they take an initial markup of 50%. In this math example, that gives them $19 of margin on the bag. And they try to sell that through and not mark it down. Then at that point, it becomes a game of volume. Obviously, these guys have about 10,000 SKUs in a store. So they're slightly different math on different examples. Things close to the checkout, treats, that kind of stuff, you might see 100% initial markups or 200% initial markups where the margin is really good. And in other examples, you might see for example, the low-end food brands, you might see a tighter margin. To some degree, you want to sell higher margin stuff. And I think that's the name of the game in all retailing. But more than anything, you just want volume. The US grocery industry is famously very low margin, but it doesn't matter because the stores can move so much volume. For these guys, they've got about 13,000 square foot stores. And if you count their e-commerce and their other revenue, you're talking about $3.6 million a store. And so moving that up, you're already paying for the rent, you're already paying for the labor. So moving that up or down, that's the primary determinant of your margin. Yeah. Talk a little bit more about if you just thought of a Petco as a single store, just give us a sense for like, you said 3.6 million. How many customers are they seeing? What sort of numbers do they get? What are people buying on average? And then how does that flow through on a PL? If you were going to think about the PL of a store at the simplest possible level, one thing that's very difficult is assigning the e-commerce sales to a store. Like historically, you would separate those out because they're coming through the website. But I think now it's so commingled. It's getting delivered to the store. It's by online, pick up the store, whatever. There's so many categories. So what I'd say is if you look at how much revenue they're generating relative to their stores, they're pulling in about $3.6 million of revenue per store. I'm going to break it down on a monthly basis just because I think from a small business perspective, that's 300 k a month. If you kind of go through and you look at what's their total rent cost, an average store costs 15 k If you look at, if you assume they step store four people, you kind of forget about the vets and the groomers because it's complicated. That's probably another 15 a month. So that's 30 k a month. Now recall on a given product, they're taking a 50% markup. So 300 k of monthly sales, 100 k of that is margin. Now you've got 30 k you know, 15 k for rent, 15 k for labor. Now you got 70 k left. You're going to have some other stuff, utilities, et cetera. That's going to cut it down a little bit further. But that's kind of conceptually what you're hoping to do. That's 40, 50, 60 k a month, depending on where those utilities, all these other, all these other ancillary costs shake out. That's 600k. That's what you're going for. And if you can move that needle on that 3.6 million, that is what drives that number up or down. And it can drive it up or down a lot. You're making whatever, maybe 20% at the store, 25% at the store level. And your product contribution is much greater than that. 33% in the lowest case, 55, 60% in the better cases. And so your store margins can go up a lot 
with an incremental amount of revenue. And that's why the name of the game is comparable store sales. That is just the holy grail because they know regardless of whether the gross margin shifts up or down or whatever, or you, what your mix is, those things matter. But the thing that matters more than anything is putting volume through comparable stores. In Petco's case, there's just a lot of noise and a lot of this stuff. They've got all these different services. They're building up that clinic. So there's thousands of things going on. But if you're putting more revenue through comparable stores, that that's the thing that's going to really drive earnings longer term. How do they drive same store sales growth? What do you view as the most important thing there? So one of the things that I think probably matters more than anything is customer frequency and the reason for a customer to visit a Petco. So historically, we talked about one of the things that really differentiated these guys early on was just this captive set of brands. And one of the things that surprised me a lot when I had century was there's literally stacks of dog food and dog treats and whatever that have been built for each channel within the industry. So a Petco and a PetSmart might have access to X foods. The grocery store might have access to Y foods. The little independent niche specialty retailer might have access to Z foods. And they tend not to cross over a lot. And the reality is Petco does 27% of their sales through owned brands. That's amazing because if I can sell a customer on my owned brands, they have to come to me. If I sell them on that, they're going to come back. That's a much better customer for me than if I sell them on Science Diet and they can order it on Chewy. If you think about the things that are going to durably raise comparable sales for them, it's these things that you have to use them for. So it's services, it's owned brands, it's captive brands or brands that are willing to give them an exclusive. So one of the things historically was there were some very, very powerful indie brands. There's a company called Champion Pet Foods that has a brand called Origin, a brand called Akana. For a while, these were the hottest thing in pet. A lot of dogs were eating this and they refused to sell on Chewy, refused to sell on Amazon. They would only go to these retailers on the basis that the retailers would help sell their food better. They'd help explain the value proposition to customers. There's a reason why you should pay 3X for your dog food versus X because this is so good. So they would only go to channels like these specialty retailers. When you have relationships like that, that's a food that is going to durably drive people back. So when you think about how are you going to grow comp sales in a business like Petco, you really need to think about, well, why are people going to come to me? The reality is if you can buy your dog food online, you can buy Purina anywhere. You can buy it at the grocery store. You can buy it at Petco. You can buy it online. You're probably not going to buy it at Petco. <laughs> this is the reality of specialty retailing. And so I think for them, they have this huge incentive to try to get you on something else that helps you stay in their channel. Another example of this actually, which is kind of an amazing example, this is a public company. There's this company called Fresh Pet that sells refrigerated pet food. And it has a mind-boggling valuation of trading at 20x revenue or something like that, right? And the growth is really good. But I've always thought the one thing that really explains it to me more than anything, certainly people like to pamper their pets and whatever. But I almost think it's like one of those things where the Petcos and PetSmarts of the world are just so heavily incentivized to push this because you just can't get it on Chewy and Amazon and you'll never be able to because it's a refrigerated pet food. It's not even frozen. You cannot ship this stuff. You have got to go to a store to eat it. And so you just watch some of these stories that these guys trading. This is a tiny company and they're valued almost as much as Petco. They're one of the largest pet market caps in the space. But one of the things they did really well was they just incentivized everyone to sell their food because they're just this perfect bulwark defense against all the e-commerce folks. Yeah, talk a little bit about how they've invested in services to also bring people back in the store. How has that changed over time? And I mean, the play makes sense, but is there anything interesting or unique about it? Yeah, I mean, I think historically they've done training and grooming for quite a long time. And the thing about training and grooming, it's just not a very big market. So I think people come back in for it, but I think 
realistically, like you probably got your dog trained once and you don't do it on a long way basis. And you probably get your dog groomed like every four months or something if you do it. And the reality is two years ago, I think they had 40 vet clinics out of 1,450 stores or something, right? So it's just not a big percentage. But one of the major transformations and the things that the new CEO is pushing is they're trying to build out to 900 vet clinics. And I think that's one of those things where that's a much more recurring need. You're going to get your shots every year, but you're going to go in a lot more often as well. And it's a little bit of an ongoing transformation for them. The jury is still not out. They've gone from 40 to 120 in a couple of years. We'll see how it works out. Veterinary is an extremely competitive space with some of the smartest strategics in the world. So I'm not saying that it's a no-brainer, but definitely kind of on paper, the strategy makes a lot of sense, which is you're leveraging your customer base, you're leveraging your physical footprint, and you're going to try to get this much higher recurring need for customers to come back to you more often. And one of the other points I would sort of make on that is these guys have tried almost every standard retail play through their history. So like one of the like, I would say like they've been one of the most conventional strategy retailers. The thing that's really driven it, driven their business and their success is just, they're just in an A++ market. It's one of those things where this idea of making a store an experience or adding services in a store or whatever, this is pretty well known in the retail space. Like that's a good idea. And so I don't think it's like differentiated at all, but I think it's smart. I think it's going to work. <laughs> the vet thing reminds me a little bit of the pharmacies inside of grocery stores. You mentioned that they've leveraged a lot of the conventional retail strategies. For those who don't know, what are the conventional retail strategies and how have they performed for Petco? So at every stage in its history, I think it's done some of these conventional things. And, and literally that dates back to its founding of being a mail or catalog business. A lot of retailers in the U.S. got their start that way. Sears very famously, but many, many more than that. A lot of the folks who are big box retailers today, they began as mail or catalogs. In more recent years, around 2000, Peco.com was one of the early kind of things. It didn't work out that well for them. They retrenched into physical, but they got into that boom. A little while later, 2010, 2011, there was this big push in US retailing to go small box. So we had 20 years of this big box expansion, the Best Buys, the Circuit Cities, the sports authorities, and everybody thought, hey, what you really need is a small box strategy. So Peco launched Unleashed. They did 110 city boxes. And I think they sort of figured out that that's actually not that much better. But a lot of folks did that pivot into small boxes and and they did as well. Another example is these store brands. So white label or store brands became really popular. I don't know exactly, but over the last 20 years and famously executed by Trader Joe's and Costco. But most specialty retailers today make a meaningful percentage of their revenue on store brands. And I think that's one of the things that that's actually probably one of their best performing things. So 27% of Petco sales today are privately owned brand store brands, that's even more than Kirkland. I think for Costco, it's 25%. It's rare to see a business this high. Another example would be Dick's Sporting Goods or something where it's just a comparable type of a thing. And I think there it's like 10% or 15%. So 27% is a good number. You know, and then the last big swing I'll say is this idea of omni-channel or stores as DCs. Stores, the distribution center, it's, it's all kind of commingled. And I think a lot of retailers today, this is the big idea and the big example. If you look at a Petco investor presentation, they will hit you over the head with this on every slide. We are better than online because this network of stores, 70% of our orders, 80% of our orders are actually getting fulfilled in the store and taken out. And by the way, did you know we can do same-day delivery and, and Chewy can't? And I think it's this idea, this is sort of the latest evolution of this retail trend, which is trying to figure out what you can compete with and what differentiates you versus 
the vast space of online competition, undifferentiated online competition. Yeah, yeah. Let's double click on that. You mentioned that 12% of their sales are e-com roughly based on your back of the envelope. And obviously Chewy's become this massive force in e-com and Amazon. And how are they competing? How do they hope to compete? How do they hope to win? Give us a sense for their strategy as it relates to e-com and D2C. The reality is for branded, I'll call it sort of commodity products, it is just very, very, very difficult to sell that in e-commerce with a profit margin relative to Chewy and Amazon. It's just tough. There's not really a strategy that works for that. The reality is that's a big percentage of their revenue. They sell dog food. They sell cat food. Like that matters to them. And so when you look at their strategy, what they're basically trying to do is go anywhere but that. So go to things that aren't in those channels, services, other types of things that aren't going to get carried, pet insurance, like different things that are just not going to be that directly competitive with those things. So it's a little bit of you try to dodge that blow. And I think the other thing we haven't really talked about but is a huge dynamic in pet is in most industries, this is called owning the customer relationship. But I think here, the way to think about it, I think about it as the hierarchy of loyalties. Most people have absolutely no idea what it's like to be a dog. And much more extreme than in a human case, you probably touch six, seven, eight different people who can tell you about your dog. The breeder, your veterinarian, maybe you take your dog to a walker or a daycare or something like that. Maybe you go to Petco, maybe you know some other pet parents. There's like all these sources of information. And the one that has the most of your loyalty is the one that's going to be able to sell you on things. And so I think for them, another major way that they try to compete with Chewy and Amazon is Chewy and Amazon are not exactly high trust sources. They're commodity sources. You buy it because you already know what you want. For Petco, a big thing is they want to be the highest trust source in your life. They want you to believe what they say about your dog. If you can own that, then you can direct people towards a place where you can make money. And I think that's just a huge dynamic in this market, which is sort of true in any market. It's true in human markets as well. But I think it's just less true because dogs are so foreign to people. They have no idea. Does my dog like raw food or refrigerated food or kibble? Is it what's good for them? What kind of harness should I use? Like People get a dog and they literally have absolutely no idea. And so when you look at their strategy too, when you look at some of their acquisitions like this, they're buying things that are helping them increase their loyalty. They bought this business called Pet Coach and it's like an app and it's supposed to help you with pet advice for your dog. And it's obvious why they might want to get into something like that because they want to deepen that relationship with you. This veterinary expansion we talked about, it's the same thing. They want to deepen this relationship with you. Maybe the veterinary business is better business what they have, but also if they have the veterinary business, the veterinarian is going to be able to tell you what kind of food to buy. And maybe you'll buy it from them. <laughs> maybe the veterinarian is going to recommend a piece of some food that only they have. Right? And so there's this dynamic as well, where I think a lot of the game they're playing is they're trying to play this game of how do I make sure that I remain the pet expert in a world that's just inundated with information and sources and places you could go get information about your dog. Yeah. Pets is an interesting one in the sense, to your point, you're buying something for a living being that can't communicate with you. It's almost definitionally this unique information gap that doesn't usually exist in most product purchases or most things you're buying. So it sounds like their answer to e-com is they don't want to compete directly with Chewy and Amazon. In general, they're trying to get people to be more loyal and bring people into the stores. If it all goes to plan for them, what's the three to five year? Will that 12% become 50% or not really? Because it'll just go through an app that'll come to the local store. What's the way to think about what they're trying to build? What do they want this to look like? It's not clear to me that they want the 12% to become 50% because they make less money on 
e-com orders versus store orders, right? It's just more expensive. And the other thing is they do the same day delivery. And all that is, is a white label to DoorDash. So I don't know what the terms of that deal are, but pretty much guarantee that that's cutting out another big chunk of margin for them. And so it's not at all clear to me that they want that to go huge, but obviously they want to be competitive. I think when you look at their vision, what they want is they want to be able to sell you on some of these store brands and sell you on some of this. I have this expertise and all of these differentiated capabilities for you. I'm the best in pet services. I have all these different services I can sell you. I'm a, a trusted provider about the health of your dog. And I can tell you all kinds of things to do for the health of your dog. And maybe some of those have a reasonable margin for me. And you want to be this destination where I can go and learn about and purchase everything I need sort of suit to us for my dog. Right. So in some sense, it's like doubling down on the local things that only they can provide services, in-house brands. Are they doing it in a digital first way? Like you mentioned same-day delivery. Are they taking that seriously, building great mobile apps? I'm just curious to how much they're really taking that into account. So they acquired a small mobile app, so they have one. Honestly, I would give them a C on this. They've missed many of their chances. I think if they were in a less forgiving industry, these guys would be toast. They missed a lot of things. PetSmart bought Chewy. They didn't buy Chewy. They missed that one big. They led the B round into Rover, but let it become public apart from them. And a lot of the digital first stuff that became major touch points for our customer, they have not really leaned into. And when you look at their strategy today, it's not clear that they have a differential digital edge versus anybody else. I'd say they're fairly generic and they're underpenetrated in e-commerce relative to what you'd think that they should be. You mentioned the Chewy deal. For those who don't know, how good of a deal was that for PetSmart? PetSmart and Petco spent much of the last 20 years being owned by private equity. At the time the Chewy deal happened, which was in 2017, Chewy was a relatively small, unprofitable e-commerce startup founded by Ryan Cohen, and it was growing very quickly. It had a big tech valuation, as you would expect. BC Partners owned PetSmart, and Canadian Pension Board owned Petco. You know, PetSmart won the deal. They paid $3 billion for it. The site, it was pretty small and pretty unprofitable, but they kind of thought this is a strategic asset in the industry and it's clear somebody's going to own petty commerce and it's probably going to be this. You know, I think BC Partners only put in $1.3 billion of equity. So the lenders weren't very happy about it, but they were able to largely finance with debt because PetSmart is a good business. PetSmart, for much of its history, has outperformed Petco. They got the deal done. They IPO'd it two years later at about $9 billion. So... 3 billion to 9 billion, and it's only a billion of equity. It's pretty hard to hit an MOI on a billion dollar plus check that fast, two years. I mean, that's incredible. I don't know exactly what they sold in the IPO, but Chewy's worth 34 billion today. So, I mean, it couldn't have been a better deal. It's an all time best private equity deal in history kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like they, they, that, that happens more often in venture and more often off a $5 million check. It's pretty rare to see that kind of an MOI on a $1.3 billion check in private equity when you're talking about a levered legacy retailer. Wow. The M&A strategy for Petco, you mentioned an app they purchased as investment in Rover. What are some of the other big deals they've done and why have they mattered? So largely the vast majority of their deals have been for retail stores. And that was true in the 90s, that was true in the 2000s. They've grown their store count a lot through just these store account deals. And I would say that's just about scale. And I don't think anything was in particular notable or that surprising. They do occasionally try to do these other sorts of deals. They bought this app that was much more about advice for your dog called Pet Coach. I think that was a relatively small deal and it makes sense. It's a, definitely an additive capability for them, but I'm not sure that I don't think most people 
have ever heard of it. You know, <laughs> even if you're a Peko shopper, I'm not sure, you know, so it's not a thing that people talk about. I don't think it was that needle moving for them. They led, I think, the B round in Rover and, and participated a couple of times. And that's one where Rover went public via SPAC a few months ago. And I think it's at a $1.6 billion valuation or something. So it's no chewy, but could they could have been a lot more aggressive there. I'm sure they did well on their investment, not trying to throw shade, but my guess is that they could have been an alternative to a SPAC and, and maybe they could have done it earlier. The private equity world has obviously loved these pet retailers. Talk a little bit about why, in your view, we've talked about some of the obvious things, and then a little bit about the corporate finance level, like how they manage their debt. What are some of the unique private equity aspects of this business? And I think the reason that private equity has liked these businesses so much is their third quartile businesses in a first quartile space. So pet couldn't possibly be a better market. Everything about pet screams this is a secular bull market and no end in sight, recession-proof, et cetera, et cetera. But the operations of a Petco or even a PetSmart, it's just sort of like these types of retail businesses. This was a concept that came up in the 90s and early 2000s, and they're pivoting, and there's always just so much room to go. There are always challenges, and there's a lot you can do operationally. And so I think private equity loves them because they trade up and down, but you can get them at relatively cheap valuations. There's this idea that there's huge amounts of room to improve them and raise profitability. You can convince yourself that this is a great deal and they're in the best possible space. So one, you have a lot of room for error because probably everybody in the space is going to grow. And then two, if you do hit a home run like Chewy, you're going to get paid for it in a huge way. Whereas like if you hit that home run in a less sexy space, you probably would have made money, but you wouldn't have made money like that. So I think that all those things just are chum in the water for the private equity folks. I think it's just a perfect confluence of factors to make this just a space that you can convince yourself that's nothing better than sitting in front of the investment committee and painting them that picture. Yeah, I think that the idea of if the market's gone from a billion to 120 to 300, you can buy into anything in that way, to your point. And then especially if you can get a discount on the valuation, it sounds amazing. I think in private equity, there's sort of two types. There's some people that really have this thesis of, I improve these businesses, I'm very operationally intensive, whatever. And then there's other, candidly, it's just for a lot of funds and whether they say it publicly or not, it's just levered beta. What has a growth rate that I can put leverage on and then I'm going to get juiced on my equity? And to be honest, whether you have an operational improvement thesis or you just a levered beta thesis, this is perfect either way. If you don't improve it and you just get pet industry growth, that's fine. And if you do improve it, it's even better. And so, and if you do both and then you buy this unique internet asset, then it's the biggest home run in, in investing history. What happened to this business during COVID? And what do you think is here to stay versus probably just was a one-time COVID thing? One of the reasons that pets are increasing secularly in the US over the last 50 years is because more and more people live alone and pets provide companionship. So if you don't live in a household with seven people, if you live by yourself, it's really nice to have a dog. COVID brought that home for a lot of people. So I think 11 million pets were adopted last year or something, 35, 40% more than normal. It's just, it's, it's a huge uptick. So there's just all these new pets out there. And that was brought about by people sat at home for a month and they went bananas. So all the shelters nationwide were in, you know, people are probably familiar with the baby boom and how that had industry-wide repercussions for 50, 70 years. This is like the baby boom as well. It has that dynamic on the pet industry. So pets only live for 10 years. So this is going to be a, a smaller bump, but there's this massive bump. And as these dogs age through, that's going to have repercussions, but probably pet adoption rates go back down to normal. Do you have a sense for how many non-pet owners became pet owners? Because to your point, even though the, the pets only live 10 or whatever years, it seems like once you've converted into that, you're always a pet owner. So do you have any sense for that? So this has been an extremely hot topic in the industry, as I'm sure you can imagine. I've never seen a good number on that. I would say, though, I think it's a safe assumption to say 
millions of households became dog owners or cattle, whatever, for the first time. Probably a safe assumption. Most people didn't go out and get a second dog. With 85 million households or whatever in the US owned dogs, a major component of that 11 million kind of incremental pets went households that didn't have a pet before. It's a meaningful amount of growth. And the other thing that COVID really did was similar to most industries, it just pulled forward adoption of digital services by 10 years. A lot of these guys, I think Petco's reporting a digital comp, a two-year digital comp of like 130%. Chewy's growing 50, 70, 100% or off already huge growth rates. When you look at the digital penetration, it's just gone up so fast in the industry. And I don't think that's going to reverse. And I think that's been largely true across channels, even in grocery or whatever. The digital adoption just became massive. Looking down in the five to 10 year horizon, if, if this business market cap doubles in the next five or 10 years, what happened? So the most obvious answer to that is the market grew. I think that's really the rational answer to that. It's just if the market doubles in the next five or 10 years, they'll probably double too. The other obvious answers are some of the things we talked about, which is if they are successful at this pivot towards services and becoming more of a we have all the spokes in the wheel. We have non-vet services. We have vet services. We have all these different components. And this Petco store becomes much more of a center for everything you need in your dog for your dog. That also, I think, drives a lot of strategic value. It, we kind of talked about this idea of hierarchy of loyalties where if they become, if they are successful at creating the spot where you really trust them, this is where you go for all of your advice on your dog. They're going to be able to build a really powerful business on that, potentially even with adjacencies we haven't thought of yet. I mean, they have a pet insurance business we haven't talked about much yet. They have all these other little legs. And the reality is owning that distribution is going to allow them to layer on lots of things on top of that that are added up to the business. Yeah, the brands they sell, the services they sell, the additional things they can add on for each customer that they bring in. And what about the opposite? If the business's market cap is half of what it is today in five years, what happened? How much growth has this market really got? I think that's one thing. I think the second thing, obviously, is just they've got a huge fixed cost footprint. And they're in a very competitive market in most of their business, which is pet food, pet supply, retail businesses. And the margins on that could continue to get pressed as the Chewies and Amazons get more aggressive. And so the reality is that market cap has part of it could just be that their stores increasingly get pushed, 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 and they make less and less economic sense. And that's just a thing that's played out in most industries already. So sports authorities went bankrupt, right? They, they kind of went up. It didn't happen here because pet is so much better than sporting goods. But in the next five to 10 years, will that continue to be true? Is the good market good enough to make it make sense for these large footprint specialty retail stores to exist? So last three questions we ask everyone, lessons for builders, lessons for investors and places for further study. So let's just take them one at a time. If you're an executive or an entrepreneur out there listening to this, what do you think is the big lesson for the Petco story? I think the biggest lesson is the importance of market selection. So these guys have tried a lot of different things over a very long period of time. Some of them have worked. A lot of them have failed miserably. They've flown too close to the sun a couple times, but they've IPO'd three different times. They always have an investor. They've gotten bought out. They've grown the business tremendously over that period of time. And it's largely that they've been in the best bull market, one of the best bull markets of all time. Another lesson I would take away which is a little bit more practical, and I think this is very applicable across industries, is the importance of getting this, you know, one, I, you know, famously in e-commerce, something is called like owning the customer relationship, being the closest point to the customer. But I think in these more competitive industries, the way to think about it is just 
owning the customer's loyalty. So the customer is going to touch everybody, but if they trust you more than everybody else, you're going to have this differential ability to coach them. That's really the thing that Petco grew their business on. They would give you IMS and you would see your dog's coat transform overnight. And that's really the thing that they built their business on that, hey, I'm telling you about this thing that you didn't know about. And it's really making a big difference in your life. And I think that that exists today is one of their key strategic focuses. It's important and kind of a lesson across industries. The last lesson for builders, I would say, is distribution, just owning this distribution, which I think is a little bit nuanced, different than that. Owning distribution opens up a lot of avenues for you. So in this case, they own distribution that got commoditized. They're distributing pet food. And, and it turned out that that was no longer a good business, but they're able to sell on different things, right? They're like, okay, well, we'll just pivot to vet and we'll pivot to grooming and we'll pivot to owned brands and we'll pivot to pet insurance and we'll pivot. They had this infrastructure to deliver stuff set up and they were able to change out which thing they delivered pretty easily. Maybe not easily, but they were able to change which thing they delivered. And so that was just another thing that kind of remained strategic for them, even as the world changed a lot. What about the lessons for investors? So... Less for investors. I think hindsight obviously is 2020 here, but I think when you look at the Petco business and what has happened to it and what they could have done differently, especially from an investor and a capital perspective, I'd say the biggest sins are sins of omission, not commission. Like these guys were in a good space. Probably all their investors were very bullish on pet. They did all the rational things and they drove the boat straight through and it was fine. And when you look at what they didn't do, they have very low e-commerce penetration. They've watched a lot of businesses get really big around them. And they didn't participate in a lot of this stuff. And I think if you had to say, you know, who's been the most bullish on pet, US pet market over the last 20 years, I bet you that all the investors at Petco and probably the management would be amongst the top of the list. They knew how good this market was. They were exposed to it every day. And leaning harder in, obviously... Maybe it was just a function of what was possible, but Chewy being an example, Rover being an example, some of these things that grew up around them where they were part of it, they were close to it, and they could have done it. I think if you were looking back as a lesson for an investor, you'd sort of say like, if I pick my spot and I'm really bullish on it, even if my core business isn't doing great, put the pedal to the metal, right? Double down. I, I think that would have been a good thing <laughs> kind of across the board, probably over the last 20 or 30 years for these guys. Double down on your winners. That's right. That's right. And if you have confidence and you're in it, you don't want to hem too much to the fairway. You want to make some big bets. And I think there are a lot of big bets these guys could have pushed harder on that could have paid off much bigger. Cool. Well, Greg, thanks so much for this. This is a super fascinating breakdown of Petco. Absolutely. Thank you. This was really fun. I hope you enjoyed this business breakdown of Petco. What I found most amazing is how compelling the pet care market is and how that rising tide is lifting all boats. It's always interesting to hear how e-commerce disrupts different industries. I'm curious to see how the pet care market evolves in the coming years. To find more episodes of breakdowns ranging from Costco to Visa to Moderna, or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot